Well, I'll tell you something from a personal point of view in the, in the homestead. I have a son and husband who dawdle in the morning. Dawdle, 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 go slow, never hurry. And I spend the morning shouting up, hurry on, you'll be late, hurry on, you'll be late. And it makes no difference. They still take their time and I'm screaming by the time they come down. Then what annoys me secondly is they say, what's wrong with you this morning? And I say, nothing is wrong with me. What is wrong with me is what you are doing this morning. You are dawdling as usual, procrastinating on time and then blaming the world and me for keeping you late for your school and your work. Um... Well, I have a husband who never comes home on time for meals, and it drives me to total distraction. And after 19 years, I have not learned to cope with it. And he continues to do it, no matter what I say. You wouldn't maybe just not cook his supper, or wait until he comes home before it happens, or let him cook it himself? I've, yeah, I've done all that. I've, you know, gone out. Uh, I have let him do the cooking himself. There's been nothing there. But you go back to the old ways, because he doesn't care. Um, rude people. Um, simply because I think that rudeness is a manifestation of ignorance. And if people thought a little bit about, a little bit more about what they actually do, then they perhaps wouldn't be as rude. What actually happens to you when, when you are confronted with somebody who's rude? I clam up and say nothing. Some of the bus conductors are fairly rude, like, you know, if you, especially when you're not around, from Dublin. You know, I'm from Wexford. And um, you ask them where such and such a place, and they tell you, but well, they should know that you don't know where to get off. And they say they'll tell you where to get off. She'd be gone miles past them when they discovered they were supposed to tell you. What gets on some people's nerves might not bother you at all. What someone might call a crisis could be a piece of cake to you. We all have different ways of reacting to situations. Some people fight, some people run. Some let it all out and some bottle it up. But no matter what way you look at it, our existence on this planet involves other people and constantly changing situations. If you like, we'll call it a series of incidents and clashes, some pleasant, some unpleasant. It also involves an elusive ingredient called stress. Now the idea of this programme is to discover what exactly happens to us in all these different situations. What happens when our nerves get frayed? What influence stress has on us and exactly how to use this stress to our best advantage? The old notion that stress is an evil poison which produces raging tempers and mental crack-ups is not quite accurate. Like so many other things, stress can be very good for us in the right measure. It could almost be compared with excitement. From the day we're born, we seek adventure and challenges. We chew things, we break things, and constantly test our surroundings. We need this excitement for life itself. When it comes to the photo finish at a race meeting or a good football match, we really love the strain and the tension that goes with it. It may sound like a contradiction, but we actually enjoy stress. There's nothing like a shot of adrenaline to disperse lethargy. Anything to keep away the boredom, which is enemy number one. An American Institute of Mental Health found that the same could be said of mice. When they set up a paradise with every conceivable comfort in it, 
the colony of mice whom they asked to live there became extremely bored. With nothing to strive for, they lost all their natural urges and didn't live very long either. The code for humans is not that different. We love to break the routine with excitement and escapism. if you like horror movies. This healthy enjoyment of stress in the cinema or by watching a video can teach us a casual attitude to anxieties. Horse racing, football, parachuting, horror movies all have one thing in common. We do them for kicks. In everything we do, we experience anxiety or attention which helps us to achieve our peak performance. Provided this anxiety is not overpowering, it becomes a very useful stimulus before an interview or before making a speech. Actor Emmett Bergen feels this every time before he goes on stage. Uh, particularly on a first night, which is very stressful. You see these strange creatures wandering around backstage, beating their heads off the wall, saying, it won't go wrong, it won't go wrong. Yeah. People are various. They hide in corners, they repeat their lines maybe to themselves. That's something I don't like doing. You have to trust that it'll be all right. But everybody is up to 90 for the first night. Would you think it's a good thing now to be a bit uh, under a bit of pressure or to be a bit apprehensive before, before a performance? Do you think it would help with it? I think it is a help, as long as it's in moderation, as long as there's somebody at the back of your head saying, don't go over the top, keep it in control. But if you were too relaxed, well, you wouldn't be performing. You've got to be tense or under some kind of stress if you're performing. And an extra bit of stress sometimes can add an extra bit of excitement to the performance. Yeah. Is there a way of kind of calming down beforehand? Well, you get very, very tense before a first night because it's the first time you've ever done the play before the audience. And I found myself saying, as a calming down thing, well, you've done it before. This is the hundredth first night you've done. You've never blown it before. Why should you do it tonight? So enjoy the stress and call it excitement. Right. Have you ever had a bad experience at all, though? Oh, some very bad experiences. Being late increases the stress very much. If, you, if you're off, now that really, your heart really goes terribly fast. You've got to go out and look as if you're very calm. <laughs> I remember lying on a bed supposed to be asleep when the lights came up and I was late getting to the bed. And I, I could hardly breathe. My heart was going so fast. And I'm supposed to be asleep. <laughs> so I don't know if that was a help or not. Yeah. So, so the whole aim, I suppose, is not to go over your, your, your threshold. Not a certain amount is very good. Yes. Well, yes. Uh, I've seen people going over the threshold, and that's unfortunate. You've got to have the controlling element. But then you enjoy the stress. Right. You've never actually lost your words. I have dried on stage, yes. And that's awful. I don't like doing it. I'm a bit afraid of it. Uh, so some actors don't mind. I've also made up lines for other actors. But uh, I don't like losing my lines myself. If anxiety is often seen as a positive, motivating force, essential to any success, it can also turn into a destructive force when it comes in large doses. Now, everyone has a threshold or a limit for excitement. It's when we go beyond this limit or if we are constantly kept in the atmosphere of great tension, that this stress becomes a threat. 
What's it like to suffer from stress? I am really up to 99 and I just feel so guilty. This is what annoys me. I'm then feeling awful for the day. So I listen to Russell Grant, get my uh, stars for the day. Usually it's very good because I'm Pisces and he, you know, we do uh, calm down in the end. And after that, I just feel I either have to do some physical exercise to get this stress out of my body. Well, it starts with a tightness of the chest and then the power leaves your arms and legs. And you're, you're not paralyzed by any means, but at the same time, you feel this terrible feeling over you. Not that you're going to get weak or anything, but it's something you're powerless to help yourself, and you've got to sit down. I get very frightened, and I have this fear, this unexplainable fear. And I also get very tight, in, or my chest gets very tight, and I can't breathe properly. And um, I sometimes have pains in my legs and my arms, and I also find I have my teeth clenched. Um, I start getting pains in my shoulders, the neck muscles, and pains up around the back of my neck. Uh, the tension would be in the muscles on the top of my shoulders um, and in the back of my neck, going into my right into my head, and then um, over into my temples and at the back of my eyes. For years, we believed that it was the top executive or the oil baron like J.R. Ewing who suffered most from stress. It was thought that business pressures were the worst cause. This is a fallacy. It has now been established that it is the weekly wage earner or the unemployed person rather than the top hard-working executive who suffers more from stress. The Irish Heart Foundation prepared a report some time ago which pointed out that the ordinary working person or the poorer families were even more prone to stress-related disorders, the most threatening of all being heart disease. There are, however, a lot more symptoms of stress which happen to us every day. Dr Cathy Flanagan of St Patrick's Hospital here in Dublin explains the three different ways that our bodies respond to stress – physically, mentally and behaviourally. Up to a certain point, pressure and stress is responded to by the body in a healthy way. Um, a sort of a classic example would be if you're in a field and you see a bull coming towards you and you leap over a six-foot fence or something and two minutes later you wonder how, how in God's name you got over the fence. Now, that's because your body responded very quickly and very appropriately to that stressor or to that threat, the bull. Um, what happens, without going into too much detail, is that a hormone, hormone called adrenaline is secreted which makes the heart pound faster to send more blood to the muscles to either fight or flee, the fight or flight response. Um, because the heart is pounding faster, we need more oxygen, which makes us breathe more quickly, and that means that the body temperature rises, which means we will start to perspire, which means that we often find we have a dry mouth. Now, that's all an awful mouthful, but in short and sweet, what it boils down to is that the heart starts pounding, we start breathing more quickly, we start perspiring, we might find we have a dry mouth, and um, generally speaking, the body prepares itself for action. Um, 
As I said, that's what happens on a physical level. The second way is mentally or cognitively. You've often found, I'm sure, that um, when you're under pressure in an exam situation, an interview situation, that you think very, very clearly that all the thoughts are nice and coordinated and everything is sort of um, nicely planned out. And you're in control of the situation. In other words, you're thinking well. Um, then behaviorally, again, up to a certain point, when we're under pressure, our behaviour can be very well coordinated. If you're told you're having ten people in for dinner in ten minutes' time, you'll zoom around the kitchen opening up tins and putting on the oven and listening to the radio and watching something else bubbling in a pot. And everything, as I say, is coordinated. You're in control, you're on top of things. Even more so than you would be if there was no pressure on. So let me just summarise the, all that um, very quickly. What I'm saying is that up to a certain point, a certain amount of stress or pressure makes us behave more effectively and more efficiently. We get things done that bit more quickly. It helps us to move out of a situation that we have to get away from. It makes us think clearly if we decide to stay in a situation. All in all, the stress response is a healthy one for coping with inevitable pressures of life. But if the pressures and the stresses go on for too long, this healthy stress response becomes almost self-defeating and we find that we're over-responding in these three ways to an uncomfortable extent. Our behaviour, all our natural human reactions and almost everything we do or think hinges on our perception of the world we live in. We categorise ourselves. You feel strong and assertive or weak and submissive. Some people naturally feel lucky, where others feel unlucky. So much depends on our individual and personal response to our surroundings. The problem is, is that we're often blind to our own logic. We're very bad observers of our own behaviour, and I think we'll talk about that a little bit uh, later on. But secondly, it's also hard for others to know when people are stressed, because we are inclined to put the best face forward. Um, I'm not saying that's a bad thing in itself, but um, the fact that we go around and if somebody says, how are you, and you'll say, I'm grand, grand, and you'll meet somebody else say, how are you, and they'll say, I'm grand, how are you, and you'll say, oh, I'm grand, means that we are all inclined to suggest that we're a little bit happier than we are. Um, now, the result of all that is that we think that everybody else is a little bit more happy than we are. So there's a sort of a conspiracy of happiness, if you like. We all suggest that we're that bit happier than in fact we are. And therefore, it's difficult for others to perceive how stressed one is. Um, why is that? Because I suppose it's all very well and it's reasonable and acceptable to talk about physical illnesses, to perhaps pop next door or talk to your workmate about the fact that you've got a cold or um, a rash or a headache. But um, it's not quite as acceptable to suggest to a friend or a colleague that you're not coping or that you're having panic attacks or that you're not able to think straight or concentrate. Um, as I say, it's, it's uh, just not quite as socially acceptable to suggest that one is under pressure. And for that reason, you see, one thing leads into another. For that reason, one can be under pressure and under stress for quite a long time, um, unwilling or reluctant to admit it, and therefore a stress problem can unnecessarily um, go on for a longer 
longer than it might without actively seeking help or advice either from friends or indeed um, from a professional if, if, if it gets to that extreme. We very much try to impose meaning on everything we do. We try to understand things and the reason we develop habits is because again it allows us to get things done much more quickly and efficiently than we would if we were to just start out um, doing everything as if it was the first time. I mean a, a very very um, well-known habit or skill would be that of driving. When you're learning to do anything for the first time, you're very conscious of your movements, but then after a while it becomes a skill, it becomes automatic and you sit into the car and you're, you get from A to B without even sort of realising that you've driven and that you've made all the correct movements. So habits are extremely important, but unfortunately there are some negative consequences of um, these habits. First would be that we're, as I said earlier, very bad observers of our behaviour because we do so many things so habitually. We get dressed, we flush the loo, we turn off the lights, we drive along, we go into the office, we type. And all of this is, is automatic or habitual behaviour to a very great extent. Um, the second consequence of um, developing habits is that we can develop bad habits just as easily as we develop good ones. So, um, okay, you can learn to drive in that, but you might get into a habit of driving too fast or um, typing might be a habit or a skilled behaviour, but you might get sloppy in that way too. So, um, in the same way, it's important um, to make the point that habits don't just apply to behaving, they don't just apply to the things we do. Habits also um, are very much part of our thinking. Everyone has a running conversation with themselves. You often even see people mumbling to themselves. It's all part of our constant self-assessment, which strongly influences our moods. Hat briefcase, coat. Oh, God, it's cold. Where are my gloves? Keys, 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 right. God, I must remember to put antifreeze in the car. I hope she'll start for me now. Ah, oh, there's Brian. He's starting out early. Hiya, Brian! Well, that's all right. Not saying hello to anyone this morning, are we? Hmm. What am I meant to have done? I hope this thing isn't in bad humour, too. I wonder what was up with your man. He must have seen me. Well, why didn't he say hello? Oh, sure, it takes all sorts. It's not like him all the same. Sure, I was only talking to him in the local the other night, and he was all chat. Or did I say something to him? Sure, we were only talking about the match on Saturday. Well, whatever it is, he's annoyed about something, and that's for sure. Ah, to hell with him. Will you mind where you're going? Bloody cyclist should be taken off the road. Everyone is taking me up wrong these days. You have to watch every word you say. I suppose I'll have your man in here breathing down my neck all day, too, making me feel as if I'm not pulling my weight. I don't know whether it's me or them, but there's something wrong somewhere. Well, the reason that he got upset about um, Brian not saying hello was because um, he interpreted the situation in a certain way. He perceived it in a certain way. He thought, Brian has snubbed me. 
Now, there are many, many, many different ways in which he might have interpreted that situation. He might have said to himself, oh, Brian hasn't got his contact lenses in, or oh, Brian must have had a row with the wife, or oh, Brian maybe has a headache, or just Brian didn't see me. And this, um, I'll just remind us, um, is the whole essence of what makes situations threatening or stressful. It's when they are perceived as being threatening. The next time that um, our gentlemen here um, were to be in a similar situation, perhaps the next day or a week later, um, he might be able to stop at the point when he would before have gone on to put himself into bad humour. He might be able to stop at that point and say to himself, look, um, there are different ways of viewing this situation. I'm not going to let happen what I happened last week, as it turned out, uh, Brian came around that evening and told me that he had had a splitting headache that morning and no, he didn't see me at all. I'm not going to let that happen again. Um, I'm going to put a different construction on it, or at least I'm going to stop and think about it. But what about stress that comes from the outside, as well as stress we inflict on ourselves? We often create our own world by the interpretation we put on things. We respond to that creation and in turn people respond to the way that we're behaving. Oh, there's a good few people in there already. I can hear noise. Coming! Coming! I hear, I hear you. That's Jim. Sounds in good humour as always. He never gets into a flap. God, I hope I'm dressed okay. Susan did say wear anything, but then she always looks great. Anyway, hope I know even a couple of people here now. Ah, Jane. Hi, welcome to the madhouse. Come in, come in. Things are just starting to roll. Here's a little something for the party. <laughs> you shouldn't have, Jane. Thanks very much. I didn't know you were a wino too. <laughs> I, I don't know where Susan is, but we've got lots of new faces here tonight. Pop your coat in the spare room. You know where it is. See you in a couple of minutes. S spare room. Spare room. Oh, yes, it's down here at the bottom of the corridor. Gosh, look at all the coats. Must be loads of people here. Lots of new faces, she said. Maybe I shouldn't have come. I hate meeting strangers. Hope I'm dressed okay, and that Susan's not too dressed up. Maybe I should have worn a dress. I'll hold on to my bag. Here goes, anyway. They're all in there, Jane. We've got two fine things lined up for you. Two fine things? God, I hope they don't come over to me. Give me a bit of time to settle. Oh, Lord... I don't see anyone I know here at all. Is that Paul over there? Oh, no, it's not. I thought she said a couple of new faces. And they're all really dressed up. I knew I should have worn something else. Maybe I should go and change. They all look really sophisticated, too. God, I hope nobody comes over. I wouldn't know what to say. I'm no good at making small talk at things like this. There you are, Jane, hiding behind the greenery. Come here till I introduce you to Mick, one of the fine things I was telling you about. <laughs> oh, no, I can't face this. It's too embarrassing. What am I going to say? My mind is a blank altogether. Hello, Jane. I'm Mick. Jim's been telling me all about you. Oh, hello. Uh, pleased to meet you. Can I get you a drink or something? Oh, no. Uh, not just yet. Uh, thanks. Lovely place they've got here, isn't it? Oh, yes. Lovely. God, what am I going to say next? Are you sure I can't get you a drink? Oh, no, no, thanks, really. I'm, f I'm fine for the present. 
I am not a great drinker anyway. <laughs> I wish I could say the same for myself. I certainly like a few drinks, especially at the weekend. Though at the price of it, we'll all be soon be dying of thirst. Yes. God, what would I say? He must think I'm really unfriendly. Maybe I should have said I'd have a drink. Oh, there's Declan and Liz. Didn't know they'd be here. God, it's a small world. Will you excuse me, Jane, while I go and say hello to this pair before they disappear on me? Oh, of, of course, yes. Nice talking to you. Betty was glad to get away. I couldn't think of anything to say. I really hate parties like this. I get so nervous. Hope no one else comes over. I can find a nice, quiet place to sit down. I'll stay for a while, and then I'll slip off. It's not really my kind of thing, anyway. But let's listen now to the same scene with a slightly different Jane. Ah, there's a good few people in there already. I can hear lots of noise. Coming! Coming! I hear you! That's Jim. Sounds in good humour as always. He never gets into a flap. God, I hope I'm dressed okay. Susan did say wear anything, but then she always looks great anyway. Hope there's a few new faces here. Susan said she had one or two fine things lined up. Ah, Jane, hi. Welcome to the madhouse. Come in, come in. Things are just starting to roll. Here's a little something for the party. Ah, you shouldn't have, Jane. Thanks very much. I didn't know you were a wino, too. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where Susan is, but we've got lots of new faces here tonight. Pop your coat in the spare room. You know where it is. See you in a couple of minutes. Music sounds good. Hope there's some dancing later. Lots of new faces, he said. Great stuff. Love meeting new people. I hope Susan's not too dressed up. Sure, I'm here now, anyway. Bit of perfume, comb hair. Here we go. They're all in there, Jane. We've got two fine things lined up for you. Only two, is it, Jim? (laughs) Well, that's just to get you started. God, you're in great form tonight. Is that Paul over there? Oh, no, it's not. Good crowd here. Looks friendly, too. I knew it was going to be a good party. There you are, Jane. Hiding behind the greenery. Come here till I introduce you to Mick. One of the fine things I was telling you about. How you stop embarrassing me, Jim? You're an awful man. Hello, Jane. I'm Mick. Jim's been telling me all about you. Not all about me, I hope. (laughs) Can I get you a drink or something? Yes, that would be great, thanks. I'd love a glass of white wine. Host, a glass of white wine for the lady here. Lovely place they've got. Yes, Susan's really great taste. And Jim's very handy with the do-it-yourself. Wish I could say the same about me. Now, cars are where I really get stuck in. Oh, the very man. Maybe you'll be able to give me a bit of advice about my old banger. Have an awful lot of trouble with it these days. Only if the price is right. Oh, there's Declan and Liz. Didn't know they'd be here. My God, it's a small world. Come on over and I'll introduce you to them. Um, It really speaks for itself, doesn't it, in, in many ways. Um, in the first situation, the girl is nervous, Jane is nervous going in, and the whole situation becomes what would be called a self-fulfilling prophecy. She decides in her head it's not going to go well, and it doesn't. Um, in the second case, uh, Jane number two goes into the situation all bubbly and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and enthusiastic, decides the situation is going to be wonderful, goes in and it turns out to be so. And you see, the the kind of thinking um, that precedes any situation is just the starter. Because if you go into a situation with a certain idea in your head, that will affect your behaviour. So your thinking affects your behaviour. And of course your behaviour will affect the behaviour of those you come into contact with. 
and people will respond to you according to the kind of mood you're in or the way you're responding to them. So in other words, the whole thing can become a vicious circle. But what about when you're in great form altogether and you bump into someone who isn't? I feel great after that keep fit class. You should come. Why don't you come next week? There are a few fellas in the class and you could do with losing a few pounds anyway. All very well for you to talk. Who'd mind the kids if we're both out jumping around? Anyway, I've got better things to do with me time. Like what? Shall you come in here every evening and flake out in front of the television? It's no wonder you're putting on weight. And anyway, sure Sally said she'd come up any night we want to go out. Oh, any night, is it? And do you think Sally is going to sit here all night for nothing? There you go about money again. You take the joy out of everything. Ah, don't start. I suppose you're always in great humour. I'm not always in great humour, but I was in the best of form when I came in here a few minutes ago. Now all the good has gone out of the evening. Well, why don't you go out again with some of your fancy fitness fellas and leave me in peace? It's the way one perceives a situation, what one says to oneself about a situation. In other words, if she says to herself, oh, I can see a row coming, a row will probably come. Um, the other thing is that oftentimes if we can stop even momentarily in a situation, like the man getting into the car, stop and say to ourselves, look, I've gone through this before, and I've been in this situation before, and I've done the wrong thing. Now, what would be a better way of approaching it? What would be a better way, a better thing to do at this point in time? And there are several things, of course, that she could do. It's just that in situations like this, what happens is people ping-pong, ping-pong, ping-pong remarks, and the temperature gets higher and higher. And then as one gets more embroiled in an argument, it becomes more difficult to sort of yank yourself out of it and stop. Not always easy, perhaps. But a close relationship with all the ups and downs can be a great buffer against stress. A close, confiding relationship, as it's often described, is extremely important in terms of buffering us against stresses. Now, what I mean by that is that if you have one person who you feel you can really talk to, really sit down and um, explain your troubles or your worries to, that is very, very important in terms of cushioning us against all sorts of life's woes and worries. Um, the most usual person to do this or to fulfil that role, of course, would be one's spouse, one hus one's husband or one's wife. But in, in the same way, one's mother or father, um, a sister or brother, a best friend, a priest, one person who you really feel understands you and you can talk to and be um, accepted by and perhaps then also receive advice from is very important. So taking it that there are cushioning devices for stress, what about the case for stress being inherited? Is it something we are born with or something we learn by imitating those around us? I suppose children do try to imitate their parents. Uh, they don't always pick up the, the, the right things and maybe he just does see it see in me something that he would like to imitate mm. although I can assure you it's not what I what I would recommend right. for him at all yeah although I'm, I'm not not kind of putting out I just kind of throwing out ideas you know mm -hmm. but would you think the kind of relaxed parents would have relaxed children and tense parents tense children I know it's kind of putting it very simplistically but what would your feelings be on that um no I don't really think it follows because um 
Although, of course, maybe it does, um, because I have a brother, and, uh, a brother, or sorry, a sister and a brother-in-law who are very relaxed in their way of life and don't seem to have very many cares or don't let their care show, and they seem to have reared very, very mild and placid children. Um, whereas my children, I would say, of the four of them, I'd say maybe I could have at least two, if not three, that would be a little bit more along my style. And you're not too sure whether it's something they were born with or something that... I suppose maybe because I develop. don't want... Yeah, maybe it's because I don't want to blame myself that I would prefer to think that it, 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 it's hereditary uh, rather than it, their um, imperfections or my imperfections rubbing off on them. Um, it would appear that some people um, are more predisposed to stressors than others. Um, in other words, some people seem to be more nervous, more highly strung, we might say, than other people. But again, it's awfully uh, difficult to put that down to what they have inherited in their genes or what they have learned. Indeed, one of the biggest controversies in psychology is the nature-nurture controversy, uh, which means what did we inherit and what did we learn? Um, you see, even if we were to suggest that the stress that some people inherit um, being more vulnerable to stress than others, it's also likely that stressful or stressed parents will create a more tense atmosphere within the home. So a child um, would learn uh, what it is like to live under pressure from a very young age. So let's say there's always a combination of both, of, of say, the genetic inheritance, but more importantly by far is the learning factor. What really happens when stress gets out of hand? No matter what experience we go through, the brain is always confronted with information which then causes a chain reaction of biochemical changes in the body. Heart pounding, breathing faster, muscle tensing and sweating. But the human body also has the inbuilt natural response to relax again after each incident. There are lots of ways in which we can teach ourselves to reduce our panic reactions and improve this natural relaxation response. Biofeedback is one of them. Dr Derek McGrath of St Vincent's Hospital talked to me recently against the background of his humming complicated machinery. We use this equipment basically for educating people about stress levels and if to give you an example that um, for instance if you look in a mirror and you're past the mirror you find yourself frowning if you suddenly get rid of that frown that's feedback you've done that yourself our instruments are just an extension of that that if you're under a great deal of pressure be it family or financial or other problems you are going to be very stressed we have a way of measuring that through either your skin temperature or your muscle tension. Now, in the case of the skin temperature, um, we might get a reading as low as 80 degrees. In other words, this is the cold hands of the tense person. And by education, trial and error, we can show you that you don't have to stay in this very high stress level, that there is some cause for it and we would try to have a look at that cause with you. Then we would take what we call baseline readings. In other words, um, what is the electrical output of certain muscles in the, the back? We take the muscles just around the neck. 
If you're very tense, the electrical output is going to be very high. If you're relaxed, it's going to be very low. If your hand temperature is low, you're under stress. If it's high, you're quite relaxed. Biofeedback itself is a learning process. And like all learning process, takes time. So we fix a treatment program. It could be 10 to 15 sessions. And the person comes in here, they learn how to cope with the stress, they learn what feedback means, but the work they do is taken away and it's done away from the hospital itself in their day-to-day -day lives. There's no medication involved. It's making them more aware of their own stress levels. So as you are wired up to your biofeedback machine, you can actually hear the sound of your own stress. Well, in your case, you're very relaxed. You're at the normal skin temperature readings. Your EMG readings are quite normal. Uh, if I wanted to train you in further relaxation, I would show you that at a hand temperature level of 94, we would like to get that up to 95, which can be done fairly easy. And we turn your hand temperature into a sound. Now, you may hear it. Right. If your hand temperature starts to drop, the sound will increase, like so. Now, I will have to explain to you that instead of relaxing, you are becoming more tense. So, the person is becoming more tense, sound getting louder. Person becoming more relaxed, sound reducing. Nowadays, biofeedback machines are not unusual in this country. You can even buy your own bi miniature biofeedback machine to take away with you. In the States now, you can buy a biofeedback ring that turns red as your tension levels mount and green as it lowers. But much cheaper and often equally effective are techniques that you can work on yourself. Dr Flanagan. To keep a diary for two weeks simply involves getting one of these small little notebooks, taking a page a day, putting the date and the day of the week on the top of each page and keeping records over a period of, as I say, two weeks because you need two weeks to get any kind of a pattern uh, when you look back over it. Keeping records for two weeks of the whens and wheres and whys and with whoms and how muches of your eating or smoking or feelings of downness or anxiety. Very interesting information about yourself can emerge when keeping a diary. When looking back on it, you may notice that you have certain ways of thinking, like our man in the car or Jane going into the party. So in other words, it can help to pinpoint our problems, and from there the aim is to work out a plan for changing. But there are a few questions we must ask ourselves first. Do I really want to change? Do I really, really want to change? that particular behaviour or is it a part of me that I sort of like in some way because it excuses me doing various things um, do I really want to lose weight um, if I do will I not have the car to get around in um, do I really want to become more assertive or do I prefer to have other people talk for me now you have to obviously be very very honest when you're doing this kind of analysis and it might even help to write out your reasons for changing on a card. And at times when you find the co going a bit hard, it can give you some encouragement to look at it.
but the going needn't be tough all the time. If you do well, reward yourself. You could go to the zoo, or out for tea, buy the latest thriller, or organise a get-together with some pals. But be honest with yourself, and plan it ahead of time. Remember, organisation is half the battle. So, you've got your diary, you want to change. You know your problems, what's next? You may have found from keeping your diary that um, the reason you're feeling down is because you're not getting out enough or because you're in a job that is financially rewarding or perhaps financially not rewarding but a job which you're not very happy in and have no choice about staying in. Or it may be that you find your house or your neighbourhood very dull and that that's getting you down a bit. So what one has to do in that case is plan again slowly and very constructively plan changes in your environment. Um, things that come to mind here are if you feel you're not getting out enough that you might plan to join um, a slimming club or to take up jogging with a group of local joggers or to join the choir or if you like to do um, cookery that you might join a cookery class or keep fit, or candle making, or stamp collecting, or anything that particularly appeals to you. Well, so much for changing your environment, what's around you. What about changing yourself? For example, if you are very, very afraid of facing people or of facing big crowds, you might write down a list which can be called a hierarchy or a ladder of situations going from a situation which doesn't make you anxious at all right up to a situation that absolutely terrifies you. And then in between you might fill in about eight or nine situations of intermediate difficulty. See, it's like going up a ladder, each situation getting a little bit more difficult than the one before. And then what you do is, starting at the bottom of the ladder, you take the first situation that makes you just a tiny bit nervous and you go into that situation and practice in it. So, to put these coping skills in six points for you. Number one, keep a diary. Number two, ask yourself, do I want to change and why? Number three, what do you want to change? What are your problems? Number four, get organised. Decide how you're going to change. Number five, reward yourself. And number six, change slowly and don't expect miracles. Changes that occur gradually are far more effective. So remember that it's nice to be in control of your reactions and the human being is naturally equipped with a catalogue of skills and devices for making life better from the inside. And I just simply kept silent for several mornings and extraordinary... Uh, to say that on all the, those mornings they were late, they missed the bus, the school bus was gone, they were late here, late for appointments, and I didn't say a word. And five days went by and suddenly my husband said to me, is there something wrong with you? I've now started taking yoga classes and doing the deep breathing exercises and I'm beginning to find that these are having some effect as to the length of time that I can operate without tablets. On Saturday... He was working again and we were going to a party and he said he would pick me up at eight. And I said, fine. So he didn't appear at eight. So I decided I wouldn't get stressed. 
I would stay calm, that it was ridiculous, that by jumping up and down, I wasn't going to make him appear any faster or, you know. So I watched a television programme, and he turned up at 20 past nine. And I smiled, and I was ready, and he got ready, and we went over to the party. I find deep breathing very, very good and exercise. Because I feel calmer in myself, and I really do think, in all honesty, and I mean jokes aside about um, losing one's day, it really doesn't get you anywhere. Because I, I would say that some kind of um, matter goes through your system, and it does poison it.